there's different loan forgiveness programs. There's the one that's available to people in the not-for-profit or government sector. That's about 25% of all employees in the country. The other 75% is eligible for the income-driven loan forgiveness, which is 20 to 25 years. And at the end of it, you have to pay income taxes to the government on anything you have left over that they wipe off the books. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. All right, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. But first, let me check in with my wonderful co-host, Cody. How's it going, man? Hey, what's up, Justin? And as a jobless guy, I have been grinding, dude. I've been working like 12 to 15-hour days. I mentioned it briefly in the last episode, but working on this side hustle course with Jay from Millennial Boss slash Fire Drill Podcast. You should tune in there. But yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun just kind of throwing all these videos together. We have like legit 200 videos and so much content. It's been a lot of fun. And you can check that out at goldcityventures.com, kind of see what the latest is. How about you, man? You've been getting a lot of media attention lately. (laughs) Yeah, so I do have a full-time job. So unfortunately, like (laughs) I post so sporadically. I have people on Twitter asking me if I'm still alive, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) But I just kind of happenstance ran into two things recently. So one, as of June 3rd, you can go out there and listen to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I think it's episode 75, but whatever the most recent one is, go listen to that. That's featuring me. And then also be on the lookout for the Boston Globe. I think it's coming out around Father's Day on a Sunday. So they're doing a feature, came by the house, took some photos today. But yeah, excited for exposure and maybe drive some more people to the podcast so they can hear awesome content like the guy that we have on today, who I've actually known longer than you, Cody. We oh, were wow. room- yeah, we were roommates before me and you were roommates. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so back at FinCon Dallas, my first FinCon, me and Travis were actually roommates, and this guy is killing it on the student loan game. But let's don't take away Travis's fire. Take it away, Travis. It's probably when I was maybe 16 years old, my granddad told me about dividend reinvestment programs, and he was not really obviously up on the whole uh online brokerage stuff. So that's something that, you know, I remember I opened my first stock account. I was investing in Arch Coal. And I remember I put it, I bought it at 38 and it went to 62 and I sold it. And then it promptly dropped to like $3 a share or something like that. Because, you know, it was around the time when, you know, the, the clean coal stuff was all the rage. And then all of a sudden, you know, coal was like the devil. And so all the coal companies crashed. And so I remember, you know, my granddad said, you know, that, that, that taught you a bad lesson. I wish it had gone, you know, down 90% first instead of doubled. (laughs) I probably really have to owe it all to him for getting me interested in finance in the first place. And I just kind of learned a lot from that and just experienced uh, what it was like to invest and compound interest and all those kind of things. And so I was naturally very frugal because he was sort of my my idol and I kind of modeled my personal financial habits after him. And so, you know, he was a, a Great Depression survivor and his family got kicked out of their farm and they had to, they lost their house. So he was very, very frugal and kind of taught me a lot of lessons from that. So I go to college, right? And I decided to go get a full tuition scholarship to college based off of the idea that, hey, I, I don't want to take on any debt. I want to make sure that I have a full scholarship, even if I'm going to a lesser ranked place. So I actually got paid to go to school. So that's the next part of my journey. When I was about 18, I got a a scholarship to my state university that that paid me kind of a similar level of what you would get as a graduate student, like for, you know, like a, you know, 15K a year kind of thing on top of the cost of tuition. And basically just did that through scholarship stacking. And I always say that, you know, the NCAA is, is a big sham because, uh, you know, I got paid to go to college. So why shouldn't athletes, right? So, I mean, shoot. So anyways, I'm, I'm getting 
pay to go to college. I'm putting away a lot of it, saving, you know, at a, even even only making 15K a year, I was probably saving like five to 7,000 a year by just house hacking. We had, I think, $275 a month rent in college. We had a house of like five guys. You know, my, my brother lived there. He was going to school with me too. So anyways, we just, you know, saved a lot. And I came out of school with about 40,000 of, of assets. So, you know, certainly pretty solid, right? Usually you come out with 40,000 of debt. So I tried to do it the opposite way. So then I got a job because I thought I was going to be a PhD economist. And I totally flunked that because I took a, a real analysis course, which is like basically every calculus and you have to prove everything you use in calculus. So all those different, you know, rules that you have with taking derivatives and integrals, you got to justify all of that with, with proofs and everything. And this professor that I had, he was a real jerk, but is the best jerk I've ever had. In fact, you know, a lot of the people that were real jerks to me professionally, I'm so grateful for them. If it wasn't for them, I, my life would have been in a terrible <laughs> path. Uh, so just because that was not my calling to be a PhD economist writing all technical research papers. So anyways, you know, real analysis kicked my butt. And I thought, well, I just I want to get in the real world and actually experience real life. I did a bunch of messaging on Bogleheads, the investment forum, and I found a job at, at Vanguard. A lot of your listeners are going to recognize that company. And I did a rotational program, got into bond trading there. So I was a bond trader for a few years and just, again, just felt like it wasn't my calling, you know, just wasn't my personality to to do that. So I just decided I was going to, I remember just being in a big corporate environment. I don't want to at all besmirch Vanguard's name. They're a great company. I just basically wasn't built for corporate America, just personality wise. And so I, I found Mr. Money Mustache probably in like 2012, sitting in my cubicle, just thinking, there's got to be more to life than this, just sitting in my cubicle for the next 30 years. And after that, I realized my frugality had a, had a purpose behind it rather than just being naturally careful with spending. And man, I was super cheap back in the day. Today, <laughs> I'm just a spendthrift. I just waste money on all kinds of stuff and flush it down the toilet. But back then, I was hardcore. I lived in an unfinished basement for like probably a year just to save some extra money. I drove a, a beat up car, sold it to a one-eyed rapper on Craigslist when I was done with it. True story. Fetty Wap? Yeah, it wasn't Fetty Wap. I don't think I can say his name because I don't want him to get any hate mail okay. uh, or anything. But quick diversion, he actually only had one eye. And I was like, well, what the heck is up with this? You know, is this guy like, you know, the toughest guy in the block or did something happen? And so he was the victim of a home invasion and he was he was truly a victim and he was actually a great guy. And, you know, um, I think that it was totally legit. He paid me in cash for the car. We did it at a title place and I really respected the guy and I thought it was, it was great. I think we both got a good deal because we both bypassed the dealership and he would have paid, you know, instead of $5,000 for the car, he would have paid like 8,000 for that car at a dealership. And I would have gotten a trade in value of like 3,000. So it worked out for both of us. But so anyways, I digress, but you know, I, I focused on having, you know, 60, 70% savings rate and got up to, I would say, uh, relatively low six-figure amount of savings, probably about 50 to 60% FI based on the traditional 4% rule. And then I just decided, well, I'm just going to do something really drastic. I saw a Wow Air Icelandic Airlines ad on Facebook for $99 tickets to Iceland one way. And then I looked up Iceland Air and found out that once you were in Iceland, you could get to the rest of Europe super cheap. And so I just decided, well, shoot, I'm so miserable. It's February and Philadelphia. It's freezing cold. I can't see the sun. I don't see the sun at all because I'm inside all day and it's dark when I get to work and dark when I leave. So I'm just going to buy this ticket and it's 99 bucks and I'm just going to do it. And so I did that. And right around when I did that, I shortly thereafter met the woman who's now my wife. And she was in Philadelphia in the most traditional job you can imagine, medicine. And she had all kinds of student loan debt. And so that 
conversation around that when we were getting serious, I was super concerned about it. She really probably wasn't. <laughs> and I wanted to become the world's expert on student loan debt because of my own personal stress from looking at her having a bunch of debt and me just abhorring it from the way that I was brought up. So I traveled for on and off for about a year, went to about 40 countries, and then went to uh, St. Louis where I'm at now because she has a, a job at a you know big hospital system here. And she's got a super traditional Joe. She hates the idea of FI. Maybe I can bring her around someday. But so to be honest, uh, you know, I, I asked her dad for permission to marry her because I'm from the South. That's how you do it down in South. Justin probably knows a thing or two about that. And so then I, and shoot, I'm rambling. But anyways, the, you know, I, I asked him if I could marry his daughter and he said, heck no. And I thought, what, wait, whoa, what, wait, what? Hold up. What do you mean? No, I'm awesome. What are you telling me no for? And he said, well, you have no job. And I'm not at all convinced that you can provide for my daughter if something terrible happened to you, uh, to her, you know, so there's no way that I'm going to let my daughter marry a bum. And I said, hold up, hold up. I have six figures in assets. Your daughter has six figures in debt. Who's the bum? And so we went back and forth and he basically said, okay, you know, if you want me at the wedding, you want me to walk her down in the aisle and give you my blessing, then I want to see proof that you're going to work hard at something worthwhile. And so I was already doing a little bit of student loan consulting on the side, just as sort of like a side hustle thing to do. And, you know, if I'm in St. Louis, I'm not able to travel a bunch and see the world like I was previously because I'm in a committed relationship and marriage now. And I got to be there for (laughs) my wife when she's got a terrible day at work. I want to be there for her at the end of the day. So I had to do something to fill my time. So I was passionate about the student loan stuff. So I decided, why the heck not? Let me go ahead and start this student loan company focusing on people with more than 100,000 of student loan debt. And now we've advised pretty close to half a billion in student loans. So that's the short story. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that if you would have never met your wife and she wouldn't have had that student loan debt, would you have ever ended up in this industry? Shoot, I don't think so. I'd probably be uh, hate blogging about fashion or something. I don't know. In 10 ways you can wear you know, three different rotations of pants with five t-shirts or something and do it for $10 you know, a, a month. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, shoot, I don't know where I would be actually if I had not gotten into student loan debt. I I blogged. I made the mistake of having a real generic personal finance blog. Hope nobody goes and looks at it, but it's called Millennial Moolah if you want to, you know, look at something that's hilarious. And I just, I I blogged (laughs) like every day or I tried to blog like three or four times a week for a year and a half and I just went absolutely nowhere. And, you know, I just didn't have a particular voice. I was kind of all over the place with my content and, you know, it didn't have any specific niche. And so the thing that I kind of found out with Student Loan Planner was basically just you need a niche if you're going to be in business to make a big difference because it's just so noisy out there. And so many people have so much money with VC funds and they're starting all these things that have such high growth rates. So unless you're really unique and specialized in what you can offer, then people kind of tune you out. So I kind of want to go back to your personal story where you quit your job. And I just want to kind of get the timeline right. So how long were you working at Vanguard before you actually pulled that trigger? Three years total. And I had started planning it probably after one year. Okay. So you had amassed a multiple six-figure net worth from working three years at Vanguard? Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, one, I was a bond trader, but I also wasn't like a Wall Street bond trader, right? So the Wall Street bond traders are the ones that probably start off with hundred some like maybe 130,000 a year income and you can get promoted pretty quickly if you're good. And so you might be making, you know, three, 400,000 five years in. So, you know, on the buy side, this is true for any company, not just Vanguard, you're going to have a lot slower progression because, you know, you're, it's, it's not a commission based environment like it is in the sell side and the buy side, you're trying to get active return. So your, your path is basically in finance, it's exponential. So your earnings start off like pretty solid 
above what you'd earn as an engineer, right? And then you kind of work your way up and eventually become a portfolio manager and then you can make some real money. Definitely. I'm actually in the finance while I was in the finance industry. So I totally know what you're saying. It's just like hockey stick, honestly. You start making like 70, 75K and then you're just like three years later, you're making like 200. You're like, what happened? (laughs) I'm curious because people are always asking, when should I quit my job? Do I have to wait till I hit the 4% rule? Do I have to wait till I have that million dollars? I'm curious if you could talk to that, just maybe having the confidence and what was going through your mind in terms of the mathematical calculations? Yeah, I mean, I got really lucky because 2015 was a great time to quit because there was not a really bad recession after that. It, you know, it's, it's, you can still get a job pretty easily today if you wanted to just jump right back into the workforce, even if you had this super weird resume like I do. If I had to go back to work, I, I probably still could because the economy is so good right now. So people that are listening today, you have to realize that 2015 and 2019 are different times. So I also don't think that you need to wait till 100% FI to retire or quit. I think that's foolish. So my, my personal philosophy is you need to get enough where you have probably, if, if you're okay going back to work, something around like $50,000, because that'll last you, if you're really careful with your budgeting, you could last for maybe two years with on the road traveling, not having to be super worried about your monthly, your daily expenses and you'll survive. If you want to make it more of an, you know, kind of indefinite thing, then I think, you know, hundred to $200,000. And I'm mostly talking about if you're single, you don't have kids. You know, if you're if you're like a young woman or, or guy and you're, you know, early twenties, early to mid twenties, and you're just like, This is so soul crushing, I want to quit, I would highly encourage you to do that. You know, if you're smart enough to be following this movement and you're digging into the math behind FI with like, you know, mad scientist and things like that, then you're definitely smart enough to get another job if you need one. So I would just say fifty K if you're down to do it for a couple of years, maybe hundred to two hundred K if you're down to do it for five, ten years and the five to 10 year goal would be to work on something you find interesting that you can turn into a business. That's my personal opinion is there's so many jobs out there that you don't even know about until you have a lot of time on your hands and you have optional hours and you can make money doing a lot of different things. So you, you meet your wife, you start doing the the student loan paybacks and you've been doing this for like almost three years now. I'm curious to see, because I read a lot of reports now saying that credit card debt is kind of creeping back up to the levels that we saw during the Great Recession. A lot of consumer debt are just climbing back up. Have you seen a trend where student debt is also creeping up to, to levels at a you know a steady rate? Are they steadily increasing? They're flatlining right now, which is very counter to the narrative with the media. They're, they're flatlining overall and just raising it at about the rate of inflation because the economy is super good. And in a great economy, people are going to be paying down the debt real rapidly, right? So what I've noticed is in the, the federal government puts out a report of the portfolio of, of, of debt and who owes what. And the people that owe less than 80000 are doing pretty well right now because they're paying down the debt. They're making progress. They're getting rid of their student loans. Probably most of those people took out loans for schools that actually made sense for them to go to, right? So business degrees, engineering degrees, that kind of thing. So those folks tend to do pretty well. There is a group around, I would say, the zero to 20K crowd that went you know, for some trade school that was a, a scam and you know, they're really poor and they you know, can't get any kind of job at all. They're defaulted. But that's just an information problem. They just need to get signed up for an income-driven plan. The, the part that I see that it is alarming is there's two groups that are exploding in debt. The people that owe more than 200000 that population of no, a number of people is growing, actually doubling about every three to five years. So three to five years, the number of people who owe two hundred grand is going to be double. So right now, it's about 600,000 people. Give another three to five years, that'll be like over a million people that owe more than two hundred grand in student loan debt. Then the other group of people that's really growing that fast is senior citizens. So seniors are, are growing and doubling the amount that they owe at about five years as well. 
So seniors and people that are in their you know 20s and 30s that are going to professional schools are the people that have it the worst. So I want to do a quick case study. Let's pretend I'm a doctor with, I don't know, $300,000 in student loan debt. And I just found out about this FI movement. And I think there's absolutely no way that I can ever hit financial independence. I'm curious what options are available to me and what you would tell or consult someone like that. And you have 300000 in debt. And what are you making right now? 200K. 200K. So you're already in attending. So you hopefully didn't make any mistakes managing your loans in residency, but you probably did. So you're probably coming to me with, ideally you have your loans set up right already and you're just trying to figure out what to do. But a lot of, like a case I had today, the person had deferment during their entire residency and gave up seven years worth of payments at two or $300 a month that would have counted towards 10 year loan forgiveness. And so now she's got to make payments of like 3000 a month for 10 years instead of three years, which is really terrible, right? But for, for the doctor, the physician who is, d- doesn't know about you know, financial independence being for them, physicians are probably one of the professions that are most easily able to access five of any profession. And that's why there's like 50 personal finance blogs for physicians, right? <laughs> so you go, to, you go to FinCon, this conference that kind of we, we know each other from, and, and literally you see, I would love to have a heart attack at FinCon if I had to have one, because goodness <laughs> sakes, I get, I get some amazing care, you know? And if I, and if I brought, if I had a kid and I brought my kid there, you know, we got the whole crew there. There's like a pediatric gastroenterologist. You've got the pediatric, you know, op, you know, everything, you know, the, the emergency docs, there's like five of them. You got somebody physician on fire that can put you to sleep. He's an anesthesiologist. <laughs> so I'm just joking around, but I think that the answer to your question is, is physicians make such high income that you can either go for loan forgiveness or you can pay it back. And, you know, physicians, if you're in any specialty besides, I would say, family medicine or pediatric, then you're going to make enough money to pay your loans back if you have to or go for forgiveness if that's the right thing to do. And for physicians, if you have at least a 50% savings rate, you'll hit the point of reaching FI probably within 11, 12, 13 years after you finish residency. And so just to piggyback on that, I just want to know for listeners and for myself, what exactly qualifies you for the student loan forgiveness program? So there's different loan forgiveness programs. There's the one that's available to people in the not-for-profit or government sector. That's about 25% of all employees in the country. The other 75% is eligible for the income-driven loan forgiveness, which is 20 to 25 years. And at the end of it, you have to pay income taxes to the government on anything you have left over that they wipe off the books. So the first one's a lot better because there's no taxes and it's for 10 years. And the second one's worse because it's for 20 to 25 and you have to pay income tax on the forgiven debt. So the first one, you know, you'll see a lot of physicians that work at not-for-profit hospitals be eligible, attorneys that are public defenders or prosecutors, teachers, firefighters, police officers, you know, that works. People that might work for any kind of, of government agency, that would they would qualify. So those folks really need to get onto the, the public service loan forgiveness program. The people that are in the private sector, generally speaking, if you owe more than two times your income, you need to be going for forgiveness. You shouldn't be paying back your debt. And it's, it's way more complicated than that, but that's just a general you know rule of thumb. If you have double your income and debt, then paying back your loans with the kind of traditional Dave Ramsey style is probably going to be a wreck, and you're going to prevent yourself from getting to FI as fast as you could. I'll give you an example. We had a case where this financial planner sent me a, a question. He's a buddy of mine, and he just said, Travis, I'm having a real hard time. This person refuses to go for loan forgiveness because she thinks it's going to fall apart and she believes that she has to pay back her loans with that, you know, Dave Ramsey get out of debt fast approach, right? And he said, I've tried multiple times trying to explain it. They won't take my advice. They're just determined to pay this thing off. 
And I said, it's that's an easy question. I said, first of all, you should send them to me because they're a bad client, <laughs> you know, and, and you want to, you know, I, I love good clients. Don't get me wrong, but, but people who are problematic, I've had a lot of experience and I can usually talk sense into people that are brick wall and don't want to listen because I, I got the math to just shut things down. And if they really are, I told them, you know, as, as, you know, talking to the person, I would just send them a note and say, you know, just wanted to tell you, I don't think it's a good idea that we work together. I don't want to be responsible for a financial mistake that would be more than a hundred thousand dollars. And I don't want to be liable for that. You know, seek another professional for guidance, unless you're willing to take my advice sincerely, you know, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and that was, that was, that was funny. He loved it because I mean, it's true. I mean, people that want to shoot themselves in the foot, they don't take advice. You can't help them. I've had a couple people. So, you know, in terms of, of like, what's a good refund rate for a business, right? Or, or a good like satisfaction versus dissatisfaction level. So we've had, you know, probably six to, you know, half a dozen to a dozen folks that haven't been satisfied out of like maybe 1800. And most of the folks that haven't been satisfied, I would say most of them were because they didn't know, or they, they, they wouldn't agree to make a change. So people that wanted to own a $2 million horse farm. And we said that was not a good idea, you know, <laughs> or somebody, I remember one person was like, I have to buy in this neighborhood or my life is over. And she said it that way, <laughs> you know, and it was just like, there's, there's one school for my child that they can go to in this entire, you know, city or else their future is going to be terrible. And, you know, I felt like saying, well, well, shoot, I'm, then I'm, I'm a, the world's success story. Cause I went to a pretty mediocre middle school and I'd maybe turned out okay. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. It's just, it's frustrating. Sometimes you, every time you get frustrated, you see the cases that make you want to sing and you, and you love those cases and you want to kind of live off of those. So getting back to kind of where the student debt is originating, I hear some arguments that say, you know, if the federal government would just get out of the loan business and, and that you wouldn't have banks coming and offering these 18-year-olds hundreds of thousand dollars worth of loans. Because, I mean, what normal business would walk up to an 18-year-old and say, hey, here's 200 grand? And that's <laughs> the reason why you keep seeing tuition rates go up. I just wonder what your take is on that argument. You're speaking like uh, Mississippi common sense there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the simple truth is, you know, people, I think, you know, I don't know what, what uh, people's personal opinions are, but I kind of believe that, you know, everybody send and falls short of the glory of God, right? And higher education administrators fall very short, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so I'm just joking there. But to be honest, there's a lot of folks out there that just want money and that's what they care about. And so there's a lot of schools out there that that's their mission is to make as much money and has have as big class sizes and have as much revenue as possible so they can get their institution to be super well-known and successful. And then their plan is to jump up to the next job at a higher pay level, right? So you look at schools, I, I don't want to mention names because I don't, I don't want to get served any lawsuits, but there's schools out there that charge people over $700,000 for a dental degree. And that dental degree produces income of 120000 a year. So you tell me how a dentist who's making 120000 a year takes home about 7000 a month can do a standard 10-year plan and pay $7,000 a month to pay back their loans. They would literally have to pay 100% of their income. You don't need a math degree to realize that that's freaking stupid. Right. <laughs> and yeah, the only way that that's possible is if there's no underwriting standards and no private investor is on the hook to have to make a positive return on that. So, yeah, I think that the current way we're doing, you know, student loan financing in America is absolutely ridiculous. It's one of the dumbest things in the entire federal government that we we do. And we do a lot of stupid stuff. And the reality is, is, you know, they made a system. They didn't think it through. 
and they passed it. And then there was long-term bad consequences from that. And now there's a massive buildup in schools that shouldn't have happened. For example, pharmacists, right? Did either one of y'all's parents ever tell you to be a pharmacist? Luckily, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What about Justin? Uh, I mean, we had some pharmacists in town who made good money, so I could see the appeal. Yeah, exactly. So so my my dad, every other week, it was either I need to be a dermatologist, a pharmacist, or, you know, a... I don't know, an undertaker or something that made money, you know? (laughs) And so he would always say, oh, you know, so-and-so went to pharmacy school. They're making 130,000 a year. You know, they work three days a week and they drive a Rolls Royce. You should go be a pharmacist, right? So I I say that in tongue in cheek because most people say that, you know, you should go to some professional school and become a professional with a high stable income, right? So what happened to the pharmacist profession since they passed the Grad Plus program in 2006 is absolutely stunning. So in 2005, the acceptance rate for pharmacy school is about 32%. So there was about 40 something schools and people were graduating. The supply was relatively restricted, right? And so incomes were fantastic. You could write your own ticket as a pharmacist. Over 10 years, and actually it's a little longer, but you know, today in 2019, the acceptance rate for pharmacy school, I think is about 83%. So if you have a pulse and know how to sign your name, you can get into pharmacy school now. And that has had predictable results because now, if even if you, you wanted to be a pharmacist since you were 10 years old and you're really good at it, right? Even if that's the case, you've got all these people who are graduating from all these schools that have popped up overnight and the number of pharmacy schools went from about 40 to about 130 over, over 13 years. So in other words, there's been this massive overbuilding of programs and you have a massive oversupply of professionals and that is starting to drive incomes in the pharmacist profession seriously downwards. If you look at physicians, one reason why physicians haven't experienced any distress is because the Medicare system funds residencies. So there's a max cap on the number of residencies that exist. So there's a natural limit on how many people can go in to become an MD because if you're not getting your people matched to residency programs, then that looks terrible for accreditation purposes. You might have a tough time existing, right? So any program that doesn't have this natural limitation on practitioners is just basically falling apart with a very long, slow process and road down to that road of falling apart. So I would give it another 10 years. And, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if certain professions are just really, really struggling for the income side because of the oversupply. So I have a question for maybe some parents who are listening or maybe an ambitious high school student. The career paths that come to mind when I think of like massive amounts of student loan debt are typically physicians, dentists, and lawyers. Are there any other that we should kind of be looking out for in terms of debt to future income ratio? Like what professions are getting absolutely clobbered from student loan debt? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. 
shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. Psychologists, chiropractors, becoming a chiropractor now is basically totally terrible idea. I mean, like just absolutely miserable in terms of the, the return on investment because the typical chiropractor has about 50K of income and the typical debt of 250K. So five to one debt to income ratio for a degree, you could have gotten the same income for by just going to undergrad and doing a business degree, right? So the reason for that is because the, the chiropractic colleges figured out a way to tap that federal loan spigot. And so they figured out they could charge anything and there's no limit. So they just tell people, sign your name and everybody's leaving with 250K. I'll tell you some of the ones that the people are leaving with with decent ratios. So so basically from a credit score perspective, I have a lot of conversations with the student loan refinancing and lending companies. And I tell them, if you want to make a good credit risk, look at the bottom third of the distri- of the cost distribution in terms of the programs that exist and only lend to those people. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm serious, because the, the best students now for these professions are not going to the brand name schools that you would recognize in US Roll Report. They're going to the ones that are the cheapest schools. So Across the board, people like dental students, there's fierce competition to get into your in-state dental school. You know, it's a heck of a lot easier to get into these private schools with more fancy names that are far more expensive, you know, because people realize if you go to the cheap school, you'll actually be able to pay it back. And if you go to the expensive school, you'll have to use loan forgiveness. So I would say for anybody that wants to do any profession, I would look for the bottom third of the least expensive schools and say that one of those schools requires you to live in state for a year to establish residency, I mean, heck, go move to that state and do odd jobs and enjoy life and find yourself and establish residency and decide for sure that you want to go do that profession and then go, you know, versus, you know, like, for example, there's some Texas programs that you can go become a physical therapist for like $20,000 and, you know, make 60, 70, 80,000. That's a pretty good trade off. There's also programs in South Florida you can take out 250000 in debt for the same exact degree. And it's just because the schools realized that if there's more people applying than there's seats for, right, the acceptance rate. So if your acceptance rate for a profession is 30 to 50%, you can simply just open more class spots and you're going to make more money, right? And so the quality of applicants across the board, on average, obviously they're still super qualified people, has declined per profession. You know, and there's maybe isolated cases where that's not true, but but that's what I've seen. So I would say any any program that requires a graduate degree to practice, you need to be very very careful before going down that road and making sure you're making a good decision. I'm curious about if there are any kind of protections for people who end up in kind of odd situations. So say you're going down this, you know, one of these professional paths, you know, you have every inclination to have a great career, you're on a good path, but then you come down with some kind of illness or sickness or something happens where you simply can't work anymore, but you're still stuck with that $250,000 worth of debt. You know, you're missing out those high income years. Is there any kind of protection for people like that? There is. Yeah. So those protections have gotten a little bit better in the past couple of years. So there was a, there was a case where there was a veteran who had a traumatic brain injury for serving our country in Iraq. And uh, I think it was Iraq and he had 200,000 of law school debt from before his stint in the military. And he got that debt forgiven because of his traumatic brain injury. But the state of Michigan and the IRS sent him an income tax bill for $80,000 saying that he had to pay income tax on the forgiven debt. Oh, <laughs> prior to 2017 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act era before that time, that was the rule is if your debt was forgiven, you had to pay income tax on it. 
And he was a very, and rightfully so, a sympathetic case for showing why that's a stupid policy. And so they changed the policy. So now if you're permanently disabled based on the Social Security or VA definition, then your debt is discharged. If you die, the same thing, your debt's forgiven, your family's not responsible for it. It's a similar setup for private loans for most places. However, if you're merely disabled from performing the procedures in your profession, such as a lot of surgeons out there, right? A lot of professions, surgeons, if your hands move and shake at all, right, you might not be able to do delicate surgery. And so you could still work, in which case your debt would not be forgiven. So that's some something called the own occupation disability insurance. So that just basically means if I'm a, a doctor and I can't be a doctor anymore, but I can sell, you know, medical devices that I still get paid out as if I was not able to practice anymore. So on the same thread, say you are a doctor, but we get into like a terrible recession and you just literally, maybe you're unemployed. Maybe you just cannot find a job as a physician. Is there any kind of like payment plan reduction program where maybe it amortizes over 20 years instead of 10? Or like, what if you literally cannot make those payments every month? What happens? Yeah, that's the traditional way to think about debt. So the federal debt is a tax. It's not debt once your debt to income ratio is above a certain level. So, and that's true at any point. So if my income goes to zero, my debt divided by my income is undefined because you can't divide by zero, right? It's yep. so bad, you can't even define it. <laughs> so uh, so if your debt to income ratio is super high, then your debt is a tax. That's the income-based programs, right? You're paying based on your income. If your income is zero, 10% of, of zero is zero. So you could call your loan servicer and get your payment updated if you lost your job, if you're with the government, and your payment will literally be zero. If you refinance those loans because you thought, man, I'm a, I'm a killer, I'm going to crush it, I'm going to pay these things off in no time, and you lose your job, then there are certain lenders out there that will let you pay zero a month for a period, I think it's usually about three months, and then they kind of ex- expect you to start payments again. So that's a good example. I think that for physicians, you're you're not going to see too many problems with that. But but you know, for another kind of occupation that might be a lot more you know volatile with the with the economic cycle, that's definitely something to consider. And that's why I say you know if if you're refinancing, you got to be careful because a lot of people don't have six months emergency funds stashed away, and they are in a job market that's the best it's ever been with a recession that hasn't happened in the longest period it's ever not happened for. Right. And all these people are like, Yahoo, I'm going to refi and I'm, you know, and I'm going to pay this off so easy. And you just want to be real careful before refinancing your federal student loans. And so when you're talking about refinancing, what are the percentages that most people are looking at before they refinance and after they refinance? Well, if you're in, you know, an undergrad, you're already dealing with a pretty good interest rate. Probably uh, Stafford's probably around 5% or so. And a lot of times you can get subsidized Stafford where the interest doesn't even accrue for three years after school if you're on an income-driven plan. And if you have unsubsidized Stafford loans, it's about a 6.6%. And if you refinance that, you'll probably get a maybe a 45 to 5%. So you know you can save anywhere from 1% to 2% on most refinancings. If you do a, sh- a super short term, you might save a little bit more in interest. You might be able to get it down to 3 or 2-something if you're doing a variable rate which is higher risk. So I would say on average, if somebody's getting a good refi deal, they're probably saving about 2% on their loan. So I kind of want to hop back a little bit. And this is something I've heard you talk about before, and it's meaningful work. And so we kind of been talking about from an objective point of view, like what careers are great for a debt to income ratio. Like you said before, maybe you don't want to be a chiropractor, but what if you always want to be a chiropractor from like age six on? So I'm wondering if you could kind of talk to meaningful work. And obviously it's not all about the numbers. You have to have a sense of fulfillment. Life is not all about money. 
But for those people who really love a career that maybe isn't the most lucrative, maybe they will come out with a bunch of debt and it's really hard to avoid. What is your advice or take on that? I'm going to give kind of a weird take on this. So I don't know if y'all have ever played the game Civilization on your computer where you have to, you know, build a bunch of, uh, you know, countries and you invade countries and stuff. Or, you know, I play all these games online and boy, it's, it's so fun. It's so gratifying. But if that was my life, if that's what I had to show for my life because I was financially independent and I had no need to work and that's what I used my time for, I think that I would be pretty bummed out about the world, right? I, I had very little impact on others. And I think that, that I would look back on my life if I spent the majority of my time doing that and just not helping other people. And I'd think, wow, I probably did not use my gifts for, for good. And I think that when I was hating my job, all I could think about was my gifts are not being used as well as they could be, and that makes me super depressed. And my dreams are not being fulfilled, and that makes me super depressed. So I had a period of time where every day was the most exciting day ever. I mean, I remember when I quit my job, the first you know two, three months, I was just on cloud nine. It was just the best feeling ever. And then I traveled around, and then they, there's a joke that goes, when, you, when you've seen 50 cathedrals, they all start to look alike. And so when you're traveling around Europe, you know, you go to the cathedral, then you go to lunch, then you go to the museum, then you go back to your hospital and chill, and then you go out for dinner and you do it all over again the next day, you know, and it sounds amazing until you've done it 50 times. And then you're like, well, what do I do next? Right. And so that's kind of what happened with me. And, you know, I got married and everything and and realized, well, long term being financially independent is great, but, you know, some people can do it and that's fine if they can do it because that's their decision. It's not mine for, for me to make for them. Right. I don't want to attack any, you know, video game players out there. If that's you, you know, be the best video game player you can and enjoy it. But for me, I felt like I was kind of hiding, hiding my light under a bushel and not helping others. And I felt like I needed to do something that I was passionate about. And so doing, you know, student loan consulting, I was pretty good at it. I was having a big impact. There was not a lot of people out there doing it. And it's something that doesn't really feel like work to me that much. So when you find that thing, I'd say work as hard as you can at it and also keep time for other activities. And then when you hit super financial independence, where you can live on, you know, literally spend whatever you want to going out to eat, then I would just say, just love that. I mean, don't feel guilty about cutting back hours, do 20 hours a week if you want. I think most physicians that are financially independent choose to work fewer hours rather than not work at all. It's actually very uncommon for physicians to just not work at all because they've spent years training and they have knowledge that can really help people, right? And when you have financial independence, you can say, hey, hospital, that's causing me to do all this BS work. I'm not doing that, (laughs) you know? And then you have power. You can actually design the life that you want instead of having that life designed for you. So I think for meaningful work, I think people going for FI, that's why I think that going back to earlier point, I think that's why you need 50K to maybe 200K to quit your job because that's enough where you're not going to have to go immediately start working again because you're going into panic mode and that's going to give you enough of a runway to try to find that meaningful work that can really fulfill your soul and fulfill that top, you know, need on the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization. So I'd like to dig back into a little bit more kind of the way your services are structured or just curious some of the things you might offer. So you talked earlier about how you went to college and actually made money going to school. And I was lucky enough to do the same thing. And I'm wondering if you know, I'm sure a lot of clients just never even considered that they could keep getting scholarships to the point where they're making money. Do you ever work with anybody kind of in the early stages of student debt before it's, you know, before it's realized while they're still in college, while they're still looking for scholarships, do you tackle that side of the equation? Or is it mostly just after they're already graduated? 
Well, if you're going to undergrad, I'm going to give a shout out to Jocelyn at the scholarshipsystem.com. So she's got a pretty good system for how to get the best scholarships for undergraduate. And then I do help some people. It's not a main offering of ours. And we only kind of offer it when people send us a, a message and ask. The problem with that is most people are pretty doggone stubborn from my experience and they already know what they want to do. And no amount of me telling them it's a bad idea is going to talk them out of it. And the people who tend to hire us for the pre-debt consult are people who are thinking about doing something for a second career, or they're a parent that's super concerned about their child, or you know something along those lines. And we do that for really for grad school. We don't really do it for undergrad because undergrad is super technical. It's it's based on the FAFSA. It's based off of you know expected family contribution. There's a whole bunch of people out there that do a pretty good job of of handling that part of the equation. So we really do specialize just in the graduate school kind of part of things and you know and parent plus loans when people have those because that is primarily for undergrad. So I I guess I would say that we would do it. It's about 249. Some of the team members do those consults and we just show them what they will end up with with our projections and debt and we'll explain the income driven programs and how those work and just make sure that they're fully informed about that decision. You know, I know that a lot of people look at our blog that early on in the process that they find us from, you know, Google search and things like that. And I think that they are hopefully finding more of that information out. I think that I got almost banned from this forum for life because I went on the this uh, SDN forum and it's a place where a lot of you know healthcare professionals can hang out. And there's a lot of ones that are for pre-professional students and they're talking about how they're going to go to dental school and they're going to make $300,000 like their uncle and they're going to crush it. And they're going to be so rich. <laughs> and uh, and I, I went on there and I just made a, a, a thread that was like, you know, dentistry is like the worst profession for debt in America. And boy, oh boy, they were angry. You know, it was funny, like my thread got pinned to the very top of the thing and then they unpinned it and the moderators were fighting each other as to whether or not I should be banned. It's real interesting. I tried to do some work to try to spread awareness about that. And like I said, you know, people believe the baloney that they've heard, right? Like people believe that hey, I, I watched all these TV shows growing up and the way to be successful in life is to go to grad school and to get a profession and get a stable income and the world's terrifying. And if I'm going to go to corporate America and have to fight the robots and AI and stuff, I'm just going to die. So I got to go get out there and get a profession that I have to have a license to do so I'm protected from competition so I can have the the beautiful life and the nice big house and the nice cars and the nice family, right? So that's kind of the, the bill of goods that I think that you know America kind of tries to sell people I don't want to get too cynical there because, you know, professionals, you got to have them. We need them badly, right? It's just right now we're producing more than we should in a sensical system. And so, Travis, just to kind of round this thing out, just in the interest of time, we got to close this thing down. We could talk for hours. But what are some of the most common mistakes that you see that people are making with their student loan debt? And what are some easy ways that they can combat that? I would say tax filing status for married couples is a really common mistake. A lot of people out there think they need to file separately that don't and vice versa. They file jointly and they should be filing separate. So that's one of the things that just is a big mess. And to show you how big of a mess it, it is, a lot of CPAs are screwing this up. You know, they don't even know how to do it properly. So it's just something that's that's a big problem. So I would just say, you know, if you think that you need to file separate or file joint, I would do some research you know, on that and try to make sure you're making the right decision. That's if you're going for loan forgiveness. Other mistakes people make is I would just say kind of getting myopically focused on your debt when there's other things going on in life. You know, retirement savings matters more than paying down your student loans. There I said it, it's heretical, but you know, you got to you, you gotta <laughs> care about retirement because I mean, it's just, it, you're probably going to have a much higher return on your retirement contributions than paying down debt. So 
if anything, you need to make sure you got your emergency fund and then focus on the, you know, the retirement piece. And then if you're super stable, then yeah, sure, refinance and pay down your debt. But don't put the cart before the horse. Another problem I've seen is people who think that they know everything there is to know about the student loan system. You know, I've done 1,200 plans and have spent thousands of hours working on student loan stuff, and I learn something new every day. And not to say that people can't do this on their own because they can, and you know, a lot of people will do just fine figuring it out with reading online and different things like that. But particularly if you owe a whole lot and you have a very complicated situation and you try to figure it out yourself, you will probably make a mistake. So case in point, one person recently, the people were filing separately and they shouldn't have been. They were costing themselves 20 grand a year in taxes. And then he was in default instead of getting on an income-driven plan. And his wife was on an income-driven plan too. And their payment combined because she was on the wrong plan was actually higher than than it would have been if he had gotten out of default and just paid on his loans on an income-driven plan in the first place. So that was you know $5,000 a year mistake. And then also he was eligible for that public service loan forgiveness plan I mentioned. And he had about three or 400,000 in debt. So I calculated the amount of savings compared to where they were at prior to doing the conversation. And they were projected to save around like 550000 to $600,000. Jeez. And, you know, they, they asked me what kind of scotch I like to drink. And, you know, I told them, I told them I'm going to cut me off. I can't have any. You know, not every case is like that. Sometimes you just check it and it's like they're doing a good thing. They're doing the right stuff, right? So I would just say that people need to, I, I want to scare people a little bit so they do the research. How about that? You know, I'm totally fine if the vast majority of the people here just go the free approach, which is a great approach, and educate yourself. I'm a big fan of that. But just treat it with the appropriate level of respect. And don't pretend that your student loans are like a credit card debt or, you know, a car loan or, you know, the stuff that you listen to on these popular radio shows. If you have a lot, it's very, very different from everything you kind of think about. So, Travis, I already knew you were a great roommate, but through this interview, I've definitely learned a ton about student loan payback and and all the intricacies there. But for those who want to get a little deeper into the topic or possibly reach out to you, where are some good resources for that? Sure, they can reach out to help at studentloanplanner.com. You know, if you want to share your story, that's that's where to do that. And then in terms of good resources, I would say that Google has really got a lot of great stuff out there. So there's a whole bunch of student loan blogs, ours and others, that have a lot of answers to your questions. And all you got to do is literally type in the super long question that you've got in the you know Google search bar, and you'll find a lot of stuff. So I would suggest that people do that. There's the Student Loan Planner podcast that we have. So if you love listening to all kinds of stories around student loans, you'll like that one. We try to do a little bit of a five flavor to it, but you know, you'll definitely have a speed on that. And other resources, there's even a book by Ben White. He's an MD on Amazon that you can look up. And if you're the kind of person that is a DIY person, I would read that cover to cover and you'll know a lot of what to do. Awesome, man. All right. So one question we like to ask all our guests is, what is your number one tip for those on the path to financial independence? Number one tip. Well, I'm just going to break the rules and give you two tips. Fix, <laughs> all right. <laughs> fix, fix your silly car and housing expenses. Out of the over a thousand plans I've done, people could drink Starbucks lattes until their liver fails if they just fixed their houses and their cars. So, so many people waste 30, 40% of their paycheck on cars and houses. And these are decisions that they did not even make that consciously. They literally just made the decision after hanging out with the realtor for a few hours and then signed away 30 years worth of wages, you know, in terms of the cost of something. Or they, you know, they 
they'll sign up for a brand new car with a $500 a month payment for seven years just because they saw a funny ad with a bunch of cute little you know kittens in it in the Super Bowl or something. I mean, just it's it's sad, and and I really want to fight back against that. So just just realize, you know, you need to house hack your situation and drive paid off vehicles that you buy on Craigslist for less than ten thousand dollars. And unless you're a millionaire, in, the, in which case, do whatever you want. But if you're not, do those two things, and you can spend anything you want on other categories of your budget. I've never met somebody that's frugal with housing and cars ever who's been profligate in another area of their life. All right, Travis, that brings us to the the final part of the interview, which is the wild card question. This is the question that I'm just thinking of as I speak. Cody has no idea what's coming. So obviously you don't know what's coming. So I know you've done a ton of traveling. You mentioned hitting like 50 countries over a year. I just want you to give me a breakdown of the most ridiculous situation you ever found yourself in or you ever witnessed while you're traveling. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, this was before when I was in college, I went to do a micro loan project in the West Bank. And I was traveling from the West Bank to Jordan, and I didn't speak Arabic, and all the instructions given for the border crossing were in Arabic. And so this guy who spoke English said, hey, just follow me. And so I went through the wrong line where the Palestinians were supposed to go in the border crossing. So for folks that don't know, there's like the Palestinian border crossing, then the Israeli border crossing, and then the Jordanian border crossing. So I was crossing through, and I went through the Israeli part, and there was this woman who kind of took my passport, took me to, to interview me and everything. And she was kind of like flirting with me a little bit. And, and then she said, you know, you go over here. And so what she did is is she actually sent me to like detention to get interviewed by the psychologist. And they like kept me waiting around for like nine hours in total by the time I started going through the process Jeez. through the time I finally made it to Jordan. And, you know, I saw her over there laughing and making jokes and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, that she's a you know not a nice person. So I would say that was pretty intense. Shoot, I got robbed once uh, last night in Tel Aviv and I made it home with like $15 in my pocket and that's it, in my passport. Like that was the only thing that didn't get swiped was, you know, enough money to like get a cab to the airport and my passport. And, and I didn't even have enough money to check my luggage. And I found out that you got a free luggage check. Like they took my like all my stuff, but not my bag of clothes, right? And so I was just like, well, I guess I'm just going to leave this because I don't have any money to pay a, a fee because I don't have any credit, <laughs> I don't have any credit cards, right? One last one traveling in, in Ukraine and I realized that people with forty thousand dollars could be FI there. <laughs> I spent like five dollars you know a night on hostels and maybe five dollars a day on food and that's all all I needed. It was it was just the cheapest place I've ever been and I felt like a one percenter and I realized just how what that feels like. So if you want to be a one percenter go, go to the Ukraine. It's pretty wild. Awesome man. I love it. The trifecta. <laughs> you couldn't just do one. You gave gave us three awesome stories. But Travis, just thanks again so much for coming on, spreading all your student loan wisdom, because it is something that so many Americans battle every single day. They have this seemingly insurmountable debt, and I think maybe you just made it a little bit more surmountable for them. So thanks again, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Man, Justin, another great episode with a pretty good friend of ours too. Travis is just absolutely crushing it, and it's really inspiring to hear that he's helping all these people who struggle with something like massive student loan debt. Yeah, my favorite thing about the fact that he turned this into a business was that he was content where he was. He wasn't even looking for a job. He just realized, like, uh, if somebody's going to take me serious enough to let me marry their daughter, I'm going to have to start up a business. And whoops, next thing you know, he's consulted in over $500 million in student debt. Absolutely crazy. And I mean, me and you are lucky enough where we didn't come out of college with any debt, but 
I have so many friends. I'm sure you have a lot of friends who are your age and people in their 40s and 50s as well who are still saddled with the student loan debt, making multiple hundred dollar payments every month. I, I literally couldn't even imagine like the weight that that has on someone's shoulders. Just always trying to play catch up. Yeah, and I love that how Travis actually gave us some of those no kidding stats, like a real kind of look behind the the screen that you normally don't get or you normally just don't think about. I mean, he's talking about how that two sectors of student debt that are really exploding are these people who owe over $200,000 worth of debt and something I would have never considered, which is senior citizens with student loan debt and how much of a problem that is. Absolutely. And Travis kind of brings it full circle because he was crapping on a few professions like dentists and chiropractors. But at the end of the day, he was saying, like, if you really do love what you do, and that's like your main purpose in life, then of course, go do that. But at least understand the financial implications of your decision. Like if you're going to be a dentist, and you take a million dollars in loans, and you're making 150k a year, that's a pretty crappy position to be hanging out in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true. I hope across most of the space It's not so much about like, we're trying to tell people what they should or should not do. It's just understand the ramifications. And if you're okay with that, and you've made a business case to say, I get it, I'm going to have to work this much longer, or I get it, I'm going to have to cut these things out of my budget, and you still want to make the decision. I think you're all good for that. It's just all about understanding what your decisions lead to. What are those second, third order effects? And I think he's coming from that same place. And so, Justin, do you think that... Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. And so today's call to action, we didn't want to just stay specific to student loans because there are so many different types of debt that people struggle with every single day. So look at your debts, whether it's credit card debt, whether it's your mortgage, whether it is student loans, and see if you're the most optimized you can possibly be. Maybe you could go out and refinance. Obviously, there are some things you have to consider, like Travis said, but just make sure your debts are optimized. If you do need to seek professional help, then go do that. It might be worth the $200 consult to save tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even $1,000 is worth that consult. So just make sure you have all your debts in line and optimized to the max. Love that, Cody. I mean, almost everyone's got something they could optimize. So, you know, whatever that, even if it's not a huge number and you feel like, ah, you know, this is nothing, just go out there and look at it, consider it. But Travis definitely gave everyone a lot of good tips and we didn't even get to kind of cover everything in our summary. I mean, there was stuff in there about him traveling to 40 countries in a year on a whim He bought something online from a one-eyed rapper. I mean, you just don't get that stuff every day. So if you like this episode and you want to keep up with Travis's company that he's built, again, over $500 million worth of student loan debt consulted on, you can find all these notes and all these links at thefyshow.com slash Travis. And also with this, if you've got questions about debt and those sort of things, reach out to the best community for personal finance at thefyshow.com slash community. And last but not least is that shameless plug of, hey, go out there. If you like what we're doing, just give us a review. Give us some feedback. Those sort of things help us get the best guests we can on here. So the more reviews we have, the better the content gets. And this machine just keeps running. But as always, thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.